you want to be married, whether you're called to be married, whether you've lost your spouse, I want to say that marriage is a picture of Christ and his pursuit of you. So regardless of if you're single or married, the sign and wonder where we're going to land in this text is pointing to the fact that God has pursued you as a bridegroom and us as his church as the bride. And so whether single or married, marriage speaks volumes to us regardless of our relational status. So I got a handful of points. We got a thick text. I'm doubtful I'm going to get through it, but we're going to do it together. Does that sound good? Okay. First point, drink in the spirit of God. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 18, it says this, and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so it begins here, and uh, as we've kind of entered into the last few weeks, we've heard over the last few weeks about putting off the old self and putting on the new self and the identity that we have in Christ. So we've talked about that over the last few weeks. We talked about how grandpa's in your bones, even though Jesus is in your heart. And so there's some habits that we have that are counter to Jesus. And so we're uh, called to put off some of those things in real time. As a follower of Jesus, you haven't all of a sudden just fast forwarded through the process of maturity. It's a slow growth of seeing elements of your life that are counter to Jesus and turning from those things and accepting the ways of Jesus. And so we talked about that a few weeks ago. We talked about paying attention and even the gift and the discipline of journaling and how that helps us at being able to pay attention to areas of our lives. And so the, from there, we enter into this, this statement, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And Ephesians speaks to life. It, it's hitting all kinds of different areas. And right here, we hear about alcohol. It says, don't get Drunk. Why? Because drunkenness will ruin your life. We sometimes think that we're the exception. Drunkenness will ruin your life. It will cheapen your life. It will lead you to a reckless life. So pause. If you have found yourself drunk in the last month, my gift of wisdom to you this morning is maybe pull back for a season. Do not get drunk with wine, it says, because it will ruin your life. And the wisdom of God would say, don't do that. That is going to lead to a life that he did not invite you into. Again, you aren't the exception. Pay attention. Heed the wisdom of God. And then it says, on the contrary, be filled with the Spirit. Filled to abound. That word has been used a few times in Ephesians so far. In Ephesians 3.19, it says, being filled with all the fullness of God. In Ephesians 4.10, it says that Jesus might fill all things. And so this filling has been used a few times. And so what's interesting about the word here, be filled with the Spirit, this is a passive command. I'm no expert in Greek, far from it. But it's a passive command, which implies that this is something that we cannot make happen. It's passive. We cannot fill ourselves. We cannot control the divine. So it's passive, yet it is present tense. So the emphasis is a continuous action. So the actual command is to keep on being filled, to continually be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. This is an ongoing phenomenon 
And it's an ongoing filling that takes place. See, as we open our hearts to God, as we seek to surrender more of our lives to Jesus, there's therefore more room for him to fill. So it's both as we increase in surrender, there's more room for him to fill, and we're frankly just broken jars that continually kind of leak out, and we need a fresh filling again. It doesn't mean we lose the spirit, but we need a fresh filling. Charlie Dates, a pastor in Chicago, says that every level of surrender leads to a new level of surrender. So as we grow in surrender, we need the spirit to continue to lead and deepen us. And so it says, be filled with the Spirit. See, to become the people that Jesus has called us to be, to become the marriages that Jesus is about, to, Paul's about to invite us into, we need to be filled with the Spirit. So it lays out several practices. It talks about singing. talks about thanksgiving. It talks about uh, submitting to one another. So the question is, is this a fruit of being filled or is this a means to be filled? I was like, yeah, kind of both. And so singing, us singing, is posturing our hearts in a unique way that enables our hearts to be open to God and his presence. So when we value singing, it is a discipline, it is a means, it is a practice that opens our hearts up, it connects our minds and our hearts in a very unique way. So we sing. If you don't like to sing, try to. If it's an upstream and you're like, you're embarrassed by it, like try to lean into it because there's something about it that's really profound for us. So there's singing there. There's thanksgiving that's, that's a means to being filled, but it's also a fruit of being filled. We talked about it last week, how it's even a weapon against uh, areas of sin and lust and covetousness. Uh, thanksgiving. And then lastly, submitting to one another. I, I, would, I would give you a, a, maybe a picture. It's, it's, like, it's, it's like these practices are putting ourselves under the faucet of God. Now, we can't require for him to turn it on, but we can position ourselves under it. And so being filled with the spirit, there's a place, it's a passive command, it's present tense. So we want to put ourselves under it. And when God turns it on, he turns it on, fills afresh. Times when we don't feel his presence, times when we do, times when it feels like he's a million miles away, times it feels like he's close, but we posture ourselves with singing, with thanksgiving, with scripture, with prayer, all these kinds of things that put ourselves under the faucet so God, would you fill us afresh? So be filled with the Spirit. The offer from Jesus is this in John 7. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So drink the Spirit of God. Second point. Submit to one another. Let's read Ephesians 5.21 again. It says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's simple. How much could have been resolved if this was the mutual baseline in marriage? Submitting to one another. We're about to get into the next verse, which is wives submit. We're going to go into that in a minute. But the baseline for marriages Husbands and wives alike is submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, the same Greek word in verse 19 we find in, I'm sorry, in verse 21 we find in verse 22. See, marriage isn't about your preferences. Husbands, not about your preferences. Wives, not about your preferences, but about laying down your preferences to lift up the other. This isn't just true for women. This is equally true for men. Mutual submission. 
You know, we have to do work here because the word submit has been hijacked. We know that. If you've been just tracking with cultural trends, that word has been hijacked. But the foundation of marriage is mutual. Everybody say mutual. Mutual submission. This is the new standard for marriage. You've heard it said, but I tell you in some ways. I don't know if we understand the values that Jesus has around submission. Like deep values. I've been reading this book by Andrew Murray. It's called Humility. And boy, oh boy, do I feel like I know nothing about humility. I feel like I'm just challenged, just like punched in the gut as I'm reading this book in a good way, just like this invitation that I don't know if I really understand the depth of Jesus' heart and care around humility. And so let's read a few verses. In Mark 9, 35, Jesus says this. I have to ask us, do we believe this? He sat down with his 12 disciples, who he called, and he said this phrase, and we've heard, but do we know? Like, we know, but do we know? And he said to them, if anyone would be first... He must be last of all and servant of all. Gold standard for the elite is to be last. Like, do we even have a palette for that? I don't think we do. I know I don't. I'm challenged by it. That if anyone would be first, he must be last of all, servant of all. We go to Matthew 20, uh, verse 25, and I'll, I'll... I'll just read it to us so you don't think I'm lying. Um, 20, verse 25, it says, um, but Jesus called, is that where I want to begin? No, I don't want to begin there. Verse 20, uh, starting verse 20, I don't know what we have up there. We're going to go to 20 first. Actually, I'll, I'll just give you a recap of what's happened, and then we'll pick up there. So we have this funny story. Two guys and their mommy come to Jesus. And so mommy comes, leads the way, two guys follow, and Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And so they respond, we want to be first in your kingdom, in, the right, in your right hand and your left hand. And so he begins to lay out, I'll read a couple of the verses just because it's really good. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking, verse 22. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, we are able. They have no clue what they're talking about. And it, like we have no clue what we talk about when it comes to humility. And he said to them, you will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And then the, when the ten heard, they became indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them. So again, 12, come again. Remember, I just told you about this. But let me tell you again. Jesus called them and said, you know you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Then he says this phrase in verse 26, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So again, the 12 show up. They're, they're livid. They're like, why the heck is mommy and the two bros coming to Jesus trying to pay for their power in the next age? And so he pulls them aside and he says, this is how the Gentiles operate. They operate wanting power, exercising authority, and they use their power and their eliteness to gain it. And he says, it shall not be so among you. He says, the greatest are the ones who serve the most. Again, like, like, do I have a lens for that in my life? And then he says, the son of man, 
did not come to be served, but to serve. Son of man, there's no higher title. The title is taken directly from Daniel, the book of Daniel. And in Daniel, it refers to the ruler of all rulers, the king of all kings, the president of all presidents. And even the king of all kings goes under and lives as a servant of all. That's the kingdom of Jesus, which is counter to the kingdom of this world. So when we hear submit to one another, I don't even know if we really understand the the vastness of what Jesus is saying here. And then finally, in Philippians 3, again, just trying to recalibrate us because, again, for me, I I don't know if we really understand the depth of Jesus' heart for these types of things. So uh, Philippians chapter 2, again, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, uh, Philippians 2, starting in verse 5, it says this, Have this mind among yourselves. Who's that include? Sure. Thank you again, Felicia. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's from that place that God highly exalted him. See, he existed in the form of God, but he emptied himself. He submitted himself to his father. And from here, he was highly exalted. Daryl Johnson says, in the kingdom of God, when the spirit of the great king comes, a revolution takes place. We live in a mutual submission. All have equal dignity. All have equal value. Different roles, yes. Different responsibilities, yes. But all are equal Uh, before God, and all are in submission to Christ. So again, I think that we don't really understand the magnitude and the splendor and the invitation of mutual submission. It's necessary to understand. But submission is the way of Jesus. It is the only way of Jesus. There's not a way of Jesus that is counter to submission. It is the result of the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That is a posture of submission. See, the way of life for citizens of the kingdom of God, for those who live their daily lives under the rule of Christ, is submission. Dallas Willard says that submission is abandoning outcomes to God. All results saying, I don't know what I want to have. I want to think I know what's best for my life, but I don't. So I submit myself to you. Submission is a self-denial out of love for God and love for others. Submission is the mutual gateway of mutual love and mutual pursuit. Lastly, Richard Foster says that submission is the ability to lay down the terrible burden of always needing to get our own way. If we could only see that most things in life are not major issues, then we could hold them lightly. In submission, we are at last free to value other people. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, as to the Lord. So your relationship with Jesus and receiving his own submission to you and giving of himself to you motivates you to be able to do this. Mutual submission. He then provides ways that wives and husbands are called to function like Jesus, which leads to the third point, which is this. In marriage, the wife and husband both get to play the Jesus role. So for context, First century, women and wives just were, were dealt with in a very brutal way. Um, 
So what Paul is fighting for in this text is an overhaul of the system and an invitation into becoming a people counter to their day. I want to read this just out of context, and it's kind of painful, but it is what it is. William Barclay, a Scottish minister, kind of gave a little bit of context to what first century Jews thought about women, what Greeks thought about women, and Romans thought about women. Um, and, and Paul's going to invite us into a much more beautiful counter way. It says, The Jews had a low view of women. In the Jewish form of morning prayer, there was a sentence in which a Jewish man every morning gave thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. In Jewish law, a woman was not a person but a thing. She had no legal rights whatsoever. She was absolutely in her husband's possession to do with as he willed. The position was worse in the Greek world. The whole Greek way of life made companionship between man and wife next to impossible. The Greek expected his wife to run his home to care for his legitimate children, but he found his pleasure and his companionship elsewhere. In Greece... Home and family life were near to being extinct. Infidelity was uh, completely non-existent. In Rome, in Paul's day, the uh, matter was still worse. So Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, filled with Jews, Romans, Greeks. And he flips the thing on his head, and he gives them a gold standard that becomes the new norm for them. So there's so much here. I've honestly been wrestling for weeks around this text. There's so many nuances. We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this. My hope is to lay out a hope-filled vision for marriage, for Christian marriage. And so please give me grace within the nuance. Um, he refers to wives and he refers to husbands, which is what Genesis 1 through 3 communicates about God creating men and women, having equality, having equal value and worth, uh, having some differences. And so the nuances to our, uh, to our what did I put here? Uh, that each couple has to navigate through some of these nuances individually. Uh, but in marriage, the wife and the husband both get to play the Jesus role. So I'm going to flip, and I'm going to start with the husbands first, and I'm going to go to the wives, because I think it's helpful to understand the heart that's happening here. So Ephesians 5.25, and then we'll go back to women in just a second. Ephesians 5.25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. Father, I just ask that you would minister to our hearts this morning as we enter into this. I know some of us are really feel pain around marriage, maybe feeling alone. And I ask you to minister and provide hope. For my single friends, I pray that this would be a vision that shows the heart of Jesus in a powerful way. And for all of us, I pray you'd lift our gaze to something more beautiful. In Jesus' name. Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way husbands should or ought to love their wives as their own body, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, actually, that's the next point, so I'll stop there. Okay, so we hear this grand call that has been lost in the church and outside the church, even to lament over that, that the weaponization of wives submit is so nasty, 
that the call of husbands is so grand, and I pray that we would see a redemption of that even within our church. Husbands, it says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's not a sentence I have read in my 14 years of marriage that have shaped my view of husband more than this verse right here. These 15 words have shaped more drastic than anything else I've read. My call as a husband. A revolutionary call then and frankly a revolutionary call now. The more I experience the gospel, the more I'm humbled by my call as a husband. See, the role of a husband in the household is to represent the love of Jesus. And we don't need to go far through the book of Ephesus or through the book of Ephesians to remember the lavish grace and care and kindness of God to us. Again, Ephesians 1 through 3 are shaping this for us. See, when we were dead, when we were rebelling, when we were filled with hate, when we were running as objects of wrath, God stepped in. It says in Ephesians 2, 4, but God, rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he died for us. See, Jesus demonstrated his love through the death of himself. And it's this, the death of Jesus, the demonstration of his love, this is the call of the husband. How can I lay my life down and make my wife great? How can I give up of myself to see my wife flourish? This is the vision of Christian, a Christian husband. That is an opportunity to see someone else flourish, who nourishes, who cherishes. Man, we need the Spirit of God to help. That's why that's connected, right? Don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And right after that, we're talking about marriage, how desperately we need the Spirit of God to help us in this process of sanctification and humility. I appreciate the way Eugene Peterson paraphrases it in his message version. He says, the husband provides leadership to his wife the way Christ does to his church, not domineering, but by cherishing. So love as Jesus loved. That's the standard, husbands. Brothers. That's the standard, nothing less. Husbands, love your wives as Christ ridiculously loved the church. The spirit of the living God, help us. It's the vision for husbands and the vision for wives. We read this. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. It doesn't say husbands go tell your wives. Thankful it doesn't. In that context, that would have made sense. But in this context, Paul, again, is flipping everything on its head. He's giving dignity and dignity and worth and dignity in a way that was not existing in that day. And he speaks to the sacred, beautiful wife who is an image bearer of God. He says, remember who you are. And he says, submit. In light of the culture of Jesus' kingdom that we were already talking about, and in some ways we have to press reset on this. It's not been handled well. The vision is is beautiful for wives. It's never meant to be oppressive. In light of the context of a husband giving up everything for truly for his wife, this now makes a bit more sense. 
So we need to flesh it out a little bit. So submit to whom? Submit to your husband. Who, who does he reflect? He reflects Jesus. And so as Jesus is the head of the church and as, as the Savior, as he loves you and gives everything, lays down low enough so that you can be honored, submit to him. In light of that context is what we're talking about here. Remember, we have to embrace the fact that our understanding of headship and leadership and all the ships is more like the kingdom of this world than it is like the kingdom of Jesus. So this text is reflecting the creation story. It's reflecting Genesis 1. It's reflecting Genesis 2. And in Genesis 1, God created them male and female. He had designed that they were unique. They were each depicting aspects of who he was. They were beautifully complementing who he was and how he created them, both indispensable for each other. And then in Ephesians 2.18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. This is zooming in to the details of this creation story. He says, I will make him a helper fit for him. So God's design of male and female are equal in dignity and worth, but there's uniqueness there. Tim Keller says that men and women are not interchangeable, unisex beings, but they have different strengths that result in men and women solving problems, building consensus, and performing leadership functions in distinct ways. So helpers... Uh, helper is not a scary word in the original language like it is in 2022. Helper, this word comes from this, this Hebrew word, which is ezer, E-Z-E-R. And so helper, in that context, in the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, God calls himself a helper. And throughout the Psalms, we read it, um, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. God is described as a, as a helper It's also referred to war, and war throughout the Old Testament. It's this picture of someone who's at war, and they've run out of resources, and they're going to lose. But with reinforcements coming, with help coming, necessary strength coming, that provides the ability to conquer in that war. So that help, that azir, is essential It's strong, it's capable, it's noble, it's profoundly significant, it's indispensable in the kingdom of God. See, helper implies that she has resources that he doesn't have and they need each other to go further together. It's not like, it's it's not the way we've seen it before. That is Azir. So as the church is God's plan to bring about his mission, so the wife is essential to bring about the flourishment of, yes, the home, and yes, the community, and yes, the world. They need each other. She brings strength and courage and carries with her nobility. She's an indispensable reinforcement. So Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, says that in marriage that embrace God's design, you both get to play the Jesus role. Husbands are told to imitate Jesus as the servant leader who will go to any length, even death, to serve and purify his wife. And wives can look to Jesus as he was worshipped in Philippians 2, submissive to the role of Azir in full knowledge of her equality. So submitting is not devaluing. It's this beautiful place of honor in this context. So in the kingdom of God, this type of submission is beautifying. It's not a sign of weakness, but a sign of strength. So maybe you ask, well, who has the final say, Ernie? Well, then I would say, I think it's the wrong question, pal. I don't think it's the question of the kingdom. I don't think that's the question of the kingdom. It's the question of James and John and their mommy, but it's not the question of the kingdom. Example, let's say husband has a job opportunity. 
that job opportunity has more money on the line. It's moving to a place that he's always wanted to live. It checks the boxes and moves the needle towards his dream and his career goals. But it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. So the first question, the most important question, is will my wife flourish? Like, is this choice causing my family to flourish? How low can I get? It's not about my career goals. It's not about my aspiration. Jesus emptied himself. Like, he emptied himself. And so for us to love our wives as Christ of the church is how do we give up our rights and privileges to make her great and beautiful? Again, it's, it's just a different question that we ask. Is how do we serve one another? How do we give up ourselves to make the other great? Will she flourish? It's not about what I need in my career path, but will this make her flourish? And the wives bring the necessary resources to see her husband flourish. Man, we need the spirit to do this, right? We feel it? Nobody's talking to me this morning. I get it. It's a tough one. In marriage, the wife and the husband both get to play the Jesus role. I spent several years in a charismatic community, and, and in that charismatic community, it's pretty charismatic, and so there was a, definitely a, a pursuit of signs and wonders. And I'm all about seeing healings and miracles and those types of things, but that language is used a good bit. But in 20, 2015, I um, was at a at a conference, and at this conference, one of the, the leaders who I look up to a lot um, gave a vision of a sign and a wonder being your marriage and how it reflects Christ and the church. And the way this text goes as we close is that it, it, it highlights that, which leads to my fourth point, that God has designed marriage to be a sign and a wonder of Christ and his love for his church. Let's read these last few verses. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So he, go, he, he kind of shifts, and he, and he kind of lands the plane on the conversation of marriage. And he says, this mystery is great. Like, it's beyond what I can even express, but what I'm trying to tell you is that it's saying that it's this whole thing about husbands, this whole thing about marriages is not solely about husbands, it's not solely about marriages or about wives, it's about, it's about a, a, a reflection, a sign and a wonder of Christ and his love for the church and that relationship, that your marriage is designed to be a billboard that reflects that. Your marriage is not about your preferences. Your marriage is about being a signpost. It's about being pointing to a greater reality of Christ and his love for the church. See, husbands and wives are designed to reflect and point to Christ's love and his church. The goal isn't just to be made happy, but to be made more like Jesus. And as we're made more like Jesus, we become more happy. Happiness as a goal in itself is a dead end and it's hollow and it never leads to life. But being made more like Jesus does. So if we want to be happy in marriage, we have to accept that marriage was designed to make you holy. So this weekend coming up, shameless plug, we're doing our marriage weekend. We're going to talk more about this. It's important. It's necessary. We don't stumble into good marriages. We will not stumble into marriages that are looking like Jesus. We stumble into self-centered marriages. And there's an opportunity where we can grow together. 
There's more text here, and this is where I was a little nervous um, because I have more to go and I don't have time for it. And so I'm going to fly by as we close, have a brief conversation about children, brief conversation about parenting, and a brief conversation about work. Uh, this is going to be so short, and it is what it is, um, but wanted to spend my time where we were. So it's, it talks about children in chapter 6. Children, obeying your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, that it may go well with you, and that you may live long in the land. So it's good, children, it's good to obey because your parents see things you can't see. And so obedience is helpful there. Now, there's no guarantee cause and effect, but there is an element here that when you listen to your parents and don't do the stupid things that they've done and repeat them and actually do something different, there's a chance you're going to live longer because of it. There's not a guarantee. It's not, a, it's not an if-then. It is a, it's not a guaranteed cause and effect. But, man, as you obey your parents in return, that does help. I know most of our kids are downstairs, but it's in the text. So talk to your parent, kids about this later. I know you'd enjoy that. Uh, we're going to fast forward talking about marriage kids, but we're going to talk about parenting in particular because that one doesn't affect me. It affects you. Uh, and so you have... Have a conversation about father, uh, children. You have a conversation about fathers. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What I would just say briefly to you about that is you can't bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord if you don't spend time with them. You can't if you don't have time of being present with them. Quality time always comes from quantity time. So if you want to raise them up, spend time with your kids. That's the invitation for us today. We lead them into how to live and how to humbly follow Jesus by spending time with them. And then lastly, he talks about employees and employers. And bottom line here is, man, we want to work hard and we want to do it for Jesus, as you would for Christ, as for the Lord and not for men. So, man, this text, I know it's not light. I know it's not light, what we just went through. But we're called to drink in the Spirit. We're called to submit to one another. We're called to display Jesus, and we're called to become a sign and a wonder. So as we take communion, as we pause and reflect, man, it's the only way that we can last in doing this is is in filling of the Spirit and receiving of the gospel. And the more we receive of the grace of Jesus, the more we can give what we don't have because we've received what we didn't deserve. And that's the invitation for us. And in communion afterwards, we're going to have... Bon and Earn, they're going to be up here in the front two seats after communion. And if you need prayer, and they would love to pray for you um, after, after this time. But I, I would love to pray for all of our, our couples this morning. I, I want to pray that God would slowly begin to awaken our hearts to have a vision for marriages bigger than the vision we have for our marriages. He would invite us into something more beautiful and more um, profound than maybe we even thought that he was inviting us into. So, couples, if, you, if your spouse is in here, I'd, I'd love for you to grab their hand. All right, I'd love to pray um, for your marriage. And if your spouse isn't here, hold on to your other hand, and in faith, we're going to pray the same um, Father, this morning we confess 
that this doesn't seem possible. We confess that we feel inadequate. We confess that deep down we don't want to adhere to this. And we confess that you are the only wise one. Lord, I ask that you would move among our husbands. You'd move among our wives. And Lord, would you fill our cups with your presence, with your nearness, with your life. I pray you'd renew our hearts towards you and towards each other. Lord, would you make our marriages a sign and a wonder of your love and your care and your grace. Lord, for my single friends, would you fill them with your spirit. Remind them of the deep, deep love of Jesus. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness. In Jesus' name.